It's a bonus edition of the Sports Surgery Dispatch Podcast here. Today we have Sam Zigner, a great Sabre historian, that's going to talk about some South Florida baseball before the Marlins played in the MLB with some great players that came through there. We have Sam coming up in just a moment. Hey, this is Darren Hayes. You've probably heard me on the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch. Well, welcome to my journey of learning more about sports history. And we're going to do it by learning about the great athletes and the uniforms that they wore as they both tell a lot about the games that we love and have watched so much throughout most of our lives. These are the chronicles I'm going to share with you on what I've learned through my journey in the Sports Jersey Dispatch. Hello, my friends in sports history. This is Darren Hayes of the Sports History Dispatch. Welcome once again to the Pig Pen, your place for all things great in sports history. And we have a great program for you tonight, a very special bonus edition of the, the Jersey Dispatch podcast, where we have a gentleman named Sam Zigner, who is an author and a historian of baseball, a big Sabre member down in Florida. Uh, Sam Zigner, welcome to the Pig Pen. Thank you, Darren. A pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. Yeah, we are excited to have you here talking a little bit about uh, some South Florida baseball history. Uh, we're up north. We don't, we don't get a lot of that history, and I, I can't wait to hear about it. But I guess before we talk about that, uh, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. What made your interest uh, so much in baseball that you're writing books about it? Well, I grew up around the game. My dad was a coach. I uh, coached like an American Legion type of baseball when I was a kid. I uh, remember many a night with my great-grandfather listening to the Cincinnati Reds games on the radio. And later, I just continued that. Uh, read a lot of books when I was a kid, attended a lot of baseball games, and not only the ones my dad coached, Pittsburgh Pirates games, Cincinnati Reds games, mainly on the radio. And uh, as I got older, I just stuck with it. I always loved baseball, went to games, kept going, minor league, major league, didn't matter. I've even attended down here some of the University of Miami baseball games, which are very interesting. They have a great wow. team. here. And uh, I came to Florida in 2001. And one of the things that I discovered, and when I came to Florida, in Miami specifically, was not a lot of people knew about the history of baseball in the area. It's kind of like for most people, and if you understand Florida, it's kind of a transient area. Baseball kind of began in 1993 when the Florida Marlins launched. But what people weren't aware of, baseball in the area goes back clear to 1892. Really? With town ball, graduated to the outlaw leagues, which were an outlaw minor league leagues. They weren't officially associated with the National Association. That grew into uh, uh, certified net, uh, minor leagues where they were uh, started in like class D ball, worked up to where it was um, eventually you got into the Florida East Coast League, Florida International League, up till 1956 with the birth of the Miami Marlins, which was the first Marlins, which was a AAA affiliate in the uh, International League. And that team was started by uh, an icon, Bill Vec, and Satchel Page pitched in Miami for three seasons back then. Uh, eventually, the AAA team uh, folded in 1960, and when I wrote this most recent book, Baseball Under the Palms, Volume 2, basically what happened is it was a reboot in Miami for minor league baseball. After not having baseball in 1961, in 1962, it launched again with the Florida State League as a Class D league, which went to Class A the next year, and for the next 30 seasons, uh, we had Class uh, a ball for the Florida State League, 
Uh, one season we had AAA again, the Miami Amigos, which was a short-lived team in the Inter, uh, Inter-American League. And uh, they had some independent leagues teams, and that went up to 1991. The last team in Miami was actually the Miami Miracle. Wow. That, <laughs> that is some, some rich history there. That's quite a variety of names. Was there any like significance behind any of those names? Like the Miracles, that sounds like it must have some, some deeper meaning maybe that you're, you're aware of. Well, you know, if you go back to the history, the original team and like the 19 teams, you had the Miami Seminoles, which was an outlaw league. It was a minor league, but not officially sanctioned by the National Association. Uh, you had the uh, Magicians came along in the 20s, same thing. And then in 1927, the first sanctioned team came along. Um, there was teams, I'm just going to give you an example of some of the names over the years. We had the Wahoos. You had the uh, Tourists, the Sun Sox. One time we had two teams in Miami. We had Miami Beach and Miami. So you had the Sun Sox and the Miami Beach Flamingos. Then you go, eventually it goes back to the Marlins again. Marlins again. Then the, when the Baltimore Orioles came down here in 19, uh, they took over in 1966 from the Phillies. Uh, you had the Marlins for a while, but they changed the name to the Orioles. And then eventually when the Orioles left town and went back to the Marlins, and then the miracle was the last three seasons that uh, Miami had a minor league team in the Florida State League. Now, do they did they all these teams uh, minor league teams all play at the same venue, or did was there multiple venues involved? Well, going way back, it was the Royal Palm Gar- Grounds in Miami. That was a part of a resort hotel. Um, when it got to the more modern era, they played at Miami Field for a while. What the most recognizable stadium in Florida or South Florida anyways, was Miami stadium, which was a state of the art stadium built in 1949. And that stadium was used right up until uh, they played in there till 1989 was the last season they played there. And then the team temporarily moved to Hialeah, Florida. And then after that uh, they moved to Pompano beach, Florida, but they kept the name when they were the miracle, they still kept the Miami, uh, notation on the hats and so forth to have the name recognition of course with the marlins coming the florida marlins were coming uh, and territorial rights that was basically the death knell of minor league baseball in the miami area well that, that's very understandable you don't really want to have a minor league uh, team where you have a, a major league team that that wouldn't make much sense would it when you're striving that that far long to uh, get a big team is there, is there some, some good backstory to how the, the current Marlins uh, got into the Major League Baseball? I mean, how, how it went from a minor league up to a major league? Well, uh, for a long time, people in Miami were looking for a higher grade of baseball, and that was one of the complaints that they had about the Florida State League and the A-level team, that they felt Miami deserved a higher level of baseball. Not to say that it was a low level of baseball. The talent was very good. For instance, over the years, uh, players like Fergie Jenkins started in Miami. Uh, you had Eddie Murray. These are Hall of Famers. Right. Uh, Cal Ripken Jr. was wow. in Miami with the uh, Miami Orioles, as was Murray. Fergie was a member of the Marlins in 62 in the initial season and was there in 1963 also. Uh, going way back, Maury Wills came through Miami and his minor league career before him going to the major leagues. And so you had a lot of a lot of players, a lot of names. I mean, Johnny Oates, Don Baylor. These are just some of the names that came through the town 
that fans got to see before they made the jump to the major leagues. But basically when the Florida Marlins started, that was uh, driven by a gentleman by the name of Wayne Heisinga, who uh, owned at the time, one of his businesses was Blockbuster Video. I don't know, probably some of our older listeners will remember Blockbuster Video. And he was the main driving force to bring Major League Baseball to Miami. And that started in 1993. They came uh, at the same time, I believe, that the Colorado Rockies started. And uh, within four years, the Marlins actually won a World Series, which was almost unheard of at the time for an expansion team. Now, I believe Mr. Heisingo, didn't he also own the Dolphins at one, one time, too? I believe he might have, because I know that uh, at one time that he had a name recognition with the, the uh, stadium out there. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not as uh, well versed in football as probably you are, but <laughs> yeah, I think I think he might have, and I I think he besides Blockbuster, he might have had something to do with um, waste management. I too, I believe. Maybe I'm thinking of the wrong person, but I think I know it's uh, it's owner down there. I think it might oh, be him. Exactly right. He did. He okay. Management company. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, you're stirring some memories from the fog is clearing a little bit. So I appreciate you. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's uh, that is pretty interesting. Cal Ripken Jr., you said, was playing uh, minor league baseball with the uh, Orioles affiliate down in Miami. Now, was he sort of the Iron Man that he, he was, was in the major league, league baseball, too? Well, you know, it's interesting. He did. He was in the lineup pretty much every day when he was in Miami. He was there during the uh, 79 season. His history to Miami and Miami Stadium goes back to 1967. His dad was the manager of the 67 Miami Marlins. And Cal Jr. and his brother Billy, who both played in the big leagues, they used to run around Miami Field and shag fly balls. They kind of acted as uh, semi-ball boys, uh, hung out. They basically lived at the stadium. Uh, Cal Sr. and his wife Violet were very into baseball, as you can imagine. And so it was almost like the ballpark was their second home. And then Cal, when his, when his baseball career launched, he started out in Bluefield, West Virginia, but was promoted to Miami. And in 1979, he was with the Miami uh, Orioles. <laughs> and basically, he's in the lineup every day. Interesting thing, though, about Ripken, he was not a home run hitter then. He didn't hit his home run to well at first home run that season to well into the season. The Miami Stadium was a ballpark that was hard to hit a ball out of, but still he didn't his, I think his first home run came about a month and a half or two months into the season. Hmm. But now is, I was going to ask that question now down in Miami, I guess any era with the, the humidity, I assume you always have down there. Is it a lot harder to hit home runs down there as compared to some of the, the more, I don't know, not, I'm not counting like Colorado, but uh, some like Arizona. Is it, is it easier to hit a home run like in Arizona ballpark than it would be in the humidity of Miami? Yeah, the higher altitude really is an advantage to the batter um, in the minor leagues and the Florida State League in general. A home run leader in the league would usually lead the league with 12 to 15 home runs in a season. Uh, the humidity pl- played a hard, huge part in that. Miami Stadium was a very difficult. It was really a pitcher's park. It was very difficult to hit a home run out of. Uh, it was 400 feet to center field, and then there was a, a high wall behind the center field wall. And then down the lines, it was, uh, I think, 330, 340 feet uh, down each left field and right field poles. And so, uh, you know, that doesn't sound that deep, but when you mix it with the humidity and the wind always coming in from the outfield, 
if a guy hit 10 home runs or 12 home runs for Miami, that was considered a big season. Uh, they're all, one guy one year, Jim Fuller, who had a brief uh, turn in the major leagues, he actually one season hit 33 home runs in the Florida State League, which was colossal. Jeez. That does sound like a, a formidable field. Plus, uh, you, you got a couple things going against you. Now, I guess with the pitching, would that make a difference too? Because maybe a little bit of moisture on the ball, you know, you're not throwing an illegal spitball, but a little bit of moisture on the ball. We, we know that that can make the ball do some, some crazy things. Yeah, I think definitely that played a role. Uh, the humidity in the ball. Teams tended in the Florida State League also, I found in doing research, tended to send their better pitching prospects to the Florida State League and tended to send their better hitters more towards the West Coast, like out to Stockton, Bakersfield, those type of cities. Uh, I guess it was more of a confidence issue. You know, when you're starting at the lower level, maybe I'm just uh, speculating, but uh, you go to the Florida State League and it really does build your confidence. Uh, as an example, Ferguson Jenkins, first year with Miami, he uh, came halfway, about halfway through the season. He had a 7-2 and two record, but a .97 ERA. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really good. I assume that would probably do reverse confidence the other way too. So if, so if you're a good hitter, you're going out West. If you end up going uh, down South and the, the, against a tough pitching, uh, your batting average is going to drop where the, the good guys are going out there and really padding their numbers with against, you know, I guess uh, less, lesser pitching. Yeah. If you hit 300 in the Florida state league during those years, from the 60s, 70s, 80s, even in the 90s, you were considered a pretty good hitting prospect. As an example, Eddie Murray, when he was a 19-year-old in Miami in 1974, he hit 297, and that was considered really good. There was one other guy on the team who hit a little over 300 named Jeff Faramisco. Uh, interesting story there. Uh, talk about two players going in different directions. Uh, Eddie Murray and Jeff came a little later in the season. He was at, through the June draft. And when he arrived, if you take, he played the last about 53 games, I believe it was, but he had similar numbers to Eddie. And as you know, Eddie went on to a hall of fame career. So when uh, Jeff returned the next season for spring training, uh, Eddie had uh, moved up, but Jeff had some difficulty in spring training. He was having trouble with his breathing. He was having trouble. He had headaches, really severe headaches and so forth. And they kind of had the two guys on the same course. You know, oh, these are huge prospects. They're going to move up. Jeff's career in 75 was derailed from, you're not going to believe this. He became allergic to grass and dirt. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of tells you, you know, in the minor league, it's, it's fickle how guys go to the top. Some guys peel off to the side. And, and basically, he had to uh, retire from baseball at an early age. He was on track to go right up the system to the Orioles. Oh boy. That's a shame. You, you can't even really like trade him to the Astros or, or something. Cause there's still dirt there, huh? And you still got to play away games. Wow. No, that that really stinks. Doctors and everything in Miami. They, they had him every kind of therapy you could imagine. And he eventually said, you know, I, ha I, I can't play. They basically said, you've got this uh, allergy. It's, you have to play on grass every day. And he had to turn around and he actually became a teacher. And the interesting thing is years later, he overcame the difficulty and was able to overcome through a lot of therapy and work with doctors. He overcame his allergy and was able to go back to a field and play. 
but he was well, quite a bit older by then. His baseball career, you know, had he had moved on. Uh, great, great ending to the story. But gosh, that really, that really stinks when you're an up and comer like that. And then you, he's probably following what Eddie Murphy, Murray's career is doing and uh, seeing him just, you know, put up monster numbers and having a, a Hall of Fame career. He probably saying to himself, that could have been me. Yeah. And you think Jeff was on the same track and then all of a sudden. Yeah. Oh. Bad luck, I guess. Yeah, that's Sometimes for sure. That happened. Now, I, I see you got a couple uh, books there beside you. Are those a couple of your books that oh. you've written? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up there. And, uh, the two, well, actually, I've written three books. And this one, the first book I wrote was The Forgotten Marlins. This was the history of the original Miami Marlins from 1956 to 60. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Bill Veck launched this team, and Satchel Page pitched out of Miami for three seasons, which was uh, quite a story in itself. A lot of experiences he had while he was here. Um, it kind of inspired me to finish and do the rest of the history of Miami. I wrote uh, with my co-authors was actually my wife, Barbara, and I wrote Baseball Under the Palms, which was a history of the early years, 1892 to 1960. And then we followed that with volume two, which was baseball when it rebooted in 1962 to 1991. So we Very covered good. all of those years. It was quite a intensively researched book. Both of us worked very hard on it, but uh, it was really fun getting to work. My wife is a huge baseball fan, so we share a love of the game. <laughs> and uh, she grew up in the game. Her father played in the minor leagues uh, and also in the Cuban Winter Leagues. But he also played in Miami at one time for the Miami Beach Flamingos. It was part of his playing career as a catcher. Wow, very cool. So, uh, yeah, these are, these are the uh, two most recent books. Baseball in the Palms, of course, Volume 2, the most recent and then this is what it kind of all started was the Forgotten Marlins. Now, now, are these still available for sale? And if they are, if you could tell uh, the listeners where they might be able to purchase these. Sure. Uh, as far as the two baseball under the palms, they're available at Amazon.com. You can find it also at SunburyPress.com. That's my publisher. Uh, the Forgotten Marlins is also available on Amazon.com or through um, Scarecrow Press or you can go purchase that through Roman and Littlefield is the main publisher for that book. Okay. And we'll, we'll try to put some of those links on the show notes of this podcast. So listeners, so if you're driving, you can get connected to, to Sam and in his books so that you can get copies of those. So we'll put those links out there with the titles to, to try to help that out. Oh, thank now, you. Oh yeah, most certainly. So you said your, your wife has that background of baseball with her father, you know, being a player and everything. Is that how, did you and your wife meet through baseball? Actually, and funny, we did not. Oh, okay. Uh, it's an interesting story that goes back a long ways. Um, but uh, I came to Miami, we got married in 2001. And uh, actually, I didn't know about our father's career until we started dating. So it was really interesting. I guess baseball like minds tend to attract to each other, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, but, but in the real world, that really usually doesn't work out that way, Sam, though. I know like my, <laughs> my wife is, you know, uh, you know, isn't real a big fan of any sport and uh, she, she just supports me because I, I watch the sports, but she'll usually go in a different room and go watch one of her programs. But it's, uh, it's interesting. Huh. Yeah. I'm blessed that way. I, uh, I don't think there's many guys that have that blessing and I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, you, you are very, very rare. So 
uh, kudos to, to her and to you for, for that and, and helping you write those books. That had to be you know, quite uh, a feat to do to share that with your wife and see it go to print and you know get those first copies in your hands. That's got to be quite a thrill. Yeah, we love we love working together. And it was, you know, it sounds cliche, but it was really a labor of love for both of us. It was just so fun. And we even got to speak about her dad in both of the books, of course, because he played in Florida. And later he had an organization called Los Cubanitos that uh, when the first Cuban kids came over here in the late or I'm sorry, in the early 60s, he started a baseball league for them to keep the kids off the street and teach them, you know, the right thing to do. A lot of these, some of the kids that he coached uh, went to the big leagues. Uh, one of the most famous graduate was Freddie Gonzalez, who used really? to be manager of the Marlins. Uh, he also managed the Atlanta Braves. He's a bench coach for the Orioles now, was one of the names. And then you know, quite a few of the kids grew up and, and went on to play in the minor leagues, too. Wow. So she can sit there and say that her father helped uh, maybe cultivate the, the interest in baseball that, that propelled these guys to go on to bigger and better things. That, that's really neat. Uh, she grew up around the game for sure. <laughs> so, so you said he, he was a catcher. Now, is that a position that your wife still follows because her, her father was a catcher or knows most about her? Is she pretty well versed in, in all the positions? Uh, she's pretty well versed in all the positions. I think catcher is her favorite position, obviously, because of her dad. And, um, she knows the game pretty well. I mean, you know, we have a conversation. It's just like talking, well, she's not one of the guys, but it's like, I mean, we have in-depth conversations about baseball players. She's very knowledgeable. And so it works well. We work together. I mean, it's great. Yeah, that, that's pretty nice. Now, you were saying you know, earlier, though, you're from some different cities around the around the country. Now, are now are you a, a strictly a Marlins fan, or do you go go to some of your roots at some of your other towns? Or you know, you said you used to watch the Reds and uh, listen to Reds and Pirates on the radio when you were a kid. Are one of those your teams, or do you have uh, some other affiliation you like to follow? Well, I'm a diehard Pirates fan. I see you have Forbes Field I, in the background. Yeah. Uh, when I, I, I share your pain, <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, I followed the Reds when I was younger also, but the Pirates were always the team for me. Uh, later, at one point, my family moved to Utah. My dad transferred with the company I was with. And then I followed a team called the Salt Lake Angels, which were a triple A team in Salt Lake City back in the Pacific Coast League. At some point, I lived in Arizona. I followed the Diamondbacks following living down here i kind of semi follow the florida state league uh we have the jupiter hammerheads and the palm beach cardinals down here and then of course they train here for spring training also but uh all these years oh of course i follow the marlins florida marlins it's it's tough i follow the marlins and i'm a pirates fan uh (laughs) you have to really hang in there and have a thick skin (laughs) yes you you got a a rough uh sporting world that's for sure (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's tough being a Pirates fan, isn't it? I know, I mean, I'm I'm in my 50s, so I grew up, you know, Roberto Clemente's, you know, went, went in the, the 71 series, and, you know, I remember the 79 series very vividly as a kid. I was very much into it, and, you know, the, the early 90s were pretty good, but, gosh, the rest of it wasn't a whole lot of things to cheer about being a Pirates fan. Oh, yeah, it was rough. I You know, 79 was such a great season, I remember – Willie Stargell and Chicken on the Hill with Will. He had a chicken mm. place over there. And mm. 
And of course, uh, you know, they had so many players that one season, it was just magic. You know, you had Scrap Iron, Bill, Phil Garner, uh, Omar Moreno, uh, Ed Ott, the catcher. Bill Madlock came in a trade during the season. Blylevin was there for one season. I mean, it just came together yeah. that year. We are family, you know? Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say, that we are family. That was such a perfect motto for that team. And especially when you have your, your leader being Pop Stargell, you know, <laughs> having the name oh. Pops and you know, Dave Parkers and, you know, the Garners. And, you know, like you said, that was just some great teams. And really, you could, the community could really connect around those guys because uh, they just played so well. And it was, you know, it was the city of champions back then. The Steelers were playing really well. The Pirates were really, really good. And it was just a fun time to to grow up and be a kid. And then, the pirates you know, just sort of falling off the face of the earth there for, for about a decade. It was really hard. Yeah. Until the Andrew McCutcheon era for a while, we had some few good seasons, but we just yeah, that's, over the hump, unfortunately. That's true. That's true. And even had some good pitching then too. And just, uh, uh, had to, don't, they don't have the money to spend at the, the other, some of the other clubs do. That's, I think that's the main gist of it. Yeah, it seems like we're in a constant rebuild, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Well, hey, I really appreciate you coming on here talking about this uh, South Florida baseball history. Uh, you really educated myself. I'm sure the listeners will, will be the same and uh, will say the same. And uh, really appreciate it. And uh, we get copies of your books. And once again, why don't you give us the titles of your books? And uh, we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll put them on. Um, the show notes of this. And also if you'd like to give uh, any of your social media handles so people can follow you, uh, you're feel more than welcome to do that too, please. Oh, thank you. Uh, the first book is the forgotten Marlins. That's a tribute to the 1956 to 1960 original Marlins. They were a member of the international league, triple, uh, triple a league from 56 to 60. Uh, then we wrote baseball under the palms, history of minor league baseball in Miami. 1892 to 1960 and then baseball under the palms volume two covers the years 1962 to 1991 before the florida marlins launched and that was the uh end of minor league baseball in miami but so many great players came through here it was just amazing well sam we really appreciate you coming on here that you're a triumvir in a book here you got it you know, everything triangulated in the minor league baseball system with some great players, some great teams uh, from those eras. And uh, thank you for sharing that with us today in the big pen. Oh, no. Thank you for having me on, Darren. I really appreciate it. It's great meeting you and, uh, and your audience. Sorry, but my pitching coach just called timeout. And he's coming out to the mound. I think I'm going to get yanked for a reliever. We'll see you back tomorrow for some more great sports history on Sports Jersey Dispatch Podcast. We invite you to check out our websites, jerseydispatch.com and pigskindispatch.com, not only see the daily sports history, but to experience the preservation of great events and people that play the games. Find us on Pigskin Dispatch. It's also on social media outlets of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel. Get all your daily sports history. Pigskin Dispatch is happy to be associated with the Sports History Network, the sports headquarters of yesteryear, found at sportshistorynetwork.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.